Hello, and welcome back to the Outdoor Minimalist Podcast. I'm your host, Meg Carney, and I'm an outdoor and environmental writer and author of the book, Outdoor Minimalist, Wasteless Hiking, Camping, and Backpacking. The Outdoor Minimalist Podcast has a goal to give listeners actionable ways to waste less hiking, camping, backpacking, and more during every step of their process. Your impact outdoors starts long before you hit the trail and goes beyond leave no trace ethics. You'll learn how to identify sustainable outdoor brands, how to ask hard questions regarding sustainability, and begin to shift and evolve your mindset to integrate minimalism into all of your outdoor pursuits. In episode 60 of the Outdoor Minimalist podcast, we're talking about the impact technology has had on outdoor recreation and how we experience our outdoor adventures. There are positives and negatives to using technology in all aspects of the outdoor industry. And just like technology, the industry is always growing and changing. So to help me dive deeper into this topic, I welcomed Garrett Stevens to the show. Garrett has taken a winding path from a career in marketing and advertising to pursuing a passion for the high and wild places of the world as a mountain guide. He grew up in North Carolina and discovered a love for the mountains while in college. He moved to Montana to live and play in the incredible landscapes there and has traveled and worked throughout the United States, Europe, and South America. Currently working as a marketer for a software company, Garrett enjoys backpacking, hiking, hunting, skiing, and all things outdoors. Adventuring plans on your calendar? Remember to grab your Lava Linens travel towel on your way out the door. Founded by a mother-daughter team, Lava Linens crafts durable, luxurious travel towels as a more sustainable and better performing alternative to microfiber and cotton towels. Powered by flax and hemp, they're designed to be by your side for years to come. Use the code OUTDOORMINIMALIST for 15% off your next order. So thanks for joining me today, Garrett. It has been a long time coming, so I'm glad that you had time to be on the show today. But before we get to today's topic, I always like to start by asking guests how they got involved in outdoor recreation and how it fits into their life today. Wow, that's that's a big question. You know, I got involved in outdoor recreation as a kid, really playing sports. You know, I played a lot of soccer and then I had some friends in high school who wanted to pursue rock climbing. And so I, I got into that. And that just, boy, that that really blossomed and grew into a real passion, borderline obsession, probably, depending on who you were to ask about that. My family took me skiing. So, you know, I've, I've been out and about for most of my life. And honestly, climbing and skiing are the primary reasons why I ended up in Montana. Brought me close to the Teton Mountain Range, which is a place that's near and dear to my heart. I've spent a ton of time in there and then been fortunate enough to explore all that Montana has to offer for backpacking and skiing and just exploring, hunting, all that sort of stuff. So yeah, it's been a it's been a really outstanding journey that started when I was a youngster. That's awesome. And where did you grow up if you didn't grow up in Montana? I grew up in North Carolina. So I grew up in Charlotte, South Central North Carolina. I lived in Asheville in the western part of the state for a number of years. And that's kind of really where the bug hit for being outdoors. You know, that's where I really learned how to rock climb and spend a ton of time in the woods. Yeah, North Carolina has some beautiful outdoor spaces. That's a great area. When you left North Carolina or and now, I guess you'll have to remind me, did you ever work in the outdoor industry or do you work in it now? So I did. Yeah, I don't work in the outdoor industry now. I worked for a climbing gym through college. So, you know, it was indoor. <laughs> the climbing was indoor, but it was related to being outside. I had a stint for a while doing wilderness therapy for at-risk youth. 
So that was a program, a wilderness therapy program here in Montana. That was an excellent program funded through the Department of Corrections. And unfortunately, the state budget shortfall towards the end of that program's life uh, shut that down out here. I also spent about seven years working as a mountain guide, high altitude mountaineering all around the world. Did that from 2009 to about 2015. Wow. Yeah. So you have really been in the mountains all over the place. That's amazing. And what do you do now? Now I work as a marketer, portfolio marketing for a software organization. That's quite the switch. What led you to that? Well, I I worked in marketing for a number of years, just kind of fell into it. I landed a job with an agency shortly after I moved to Montana and just kind of got a lot of on-the-job training in marketing, spent a number of years in, in software and then another stint with an agency and decided that I wanted to pursue my passion of, of climbing as a career. So I applied for a job as a climbing guide and I got it. And that was fantastic and a great stretch of my life, but it was definitely hard on the body, hard on just the finances. It's not a lucrative career path. I mean, it's very rewarding in a lot of ways, but towards the end of that, I had some other personal things that came up and I ended up at a point where I really needed to kind of get... get a real job, I guess, a job that offered a lot more financial stability. And so kind of moved back into marketing and and have been in that role since. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think that happens to a lot of people. It sounds very similar to what happened to me. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, thank you for sharing all of that background. It's very helpful. But today's episode, let's start by talking about the types of technology that you think have started to play a larger role in outdoor recreation. I know this is a really broad topic, so just kind of do your best with the knowledge that you have. And if you could talk about what some of those different types of technologies are and maybe the history behind some of them, if you know it. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, honestly, the smartphone is probably the most significant piece of technology that's impacted outdoor recreation. The availability of information and the availability of it in the outdoor environment. I think that's had a tremendous impact. I mean, the integration of something like GPS technology, global positioning system technology into smartphones has probably been one of the most significant changes in my mind in how people are getting out, how people are recreating. I mean, GPS technology has been around for a a long time. I don't know the history of that. I'm not a GPS expert, unfortunately, but I know that it's got roots in military applications. And for folks who may not know what it is, GPS technology allows a device to connect with satellites that are in orbit that can triangulate your position and provide a direct piece of data on your exact location on the planet. And that's amazing technology. I mean, when you think back to pre-GPS days, going out there with a, a paper map and a, and a compass and trying to figure out where you are and how to navigate from point A to point B, I think that's been the biggest pieces of technology as far as having an impact on outdoor recreation. I also think that just, you know, satellite communications in general, the ability to do things like use devices to send text messages about your location or even just to communicate or to summon help. I think that's had a major impact in outdoor recreation. You know, when you think back to polar exploration and and kind of folks like Scott and Amundsen who are out there deep in the dark wilds of Antarctica or the Arctic, 
with no means of communication, right? Shackleton, I mean, those guys were doing expeditions before any of this existed and before anyone had the ability to communicate. What they relied on and how they accomplished what they accomplished is just, it's really hard to wrap my head around with all the tools and the the technology that we have at our disposal. I mean, you know, these guys were masters of their environments and masters of things like navigation, reading the land, being able to understand and see what's happening. But boy, yeah, there's just so much. I mean, I think advances in weather forecasting and, and all of that is having a major impact and generally making it more accessible making outdoor recreation more accessible for folks that are out there and and getting after it. Yeah, I feel like the accessibility piece is what I think of the most, especially when you're talking about like GPS devices. And in comparison to the explorers that you're talking about, they would have had to have such a high level of self-reliance and knowledge and practice and comfort in those environments. So if you want to stick just kind of with general GPS technologies, that is good with me. What ways do you think that those technologies have changed how we interact with outdoor spaces now? Like you mentioned a few of them, but are there any other ones that come to mind? Well, yeah, I think it's made it a lot more accessible. I also think it has created in many cases kind of this false sense of security because, you know, the on the ground realities don't change, right? If it's 10 below zero and it's a 40 mile an hour blizzard, that doesn't change. But you may have a false sense of security that, okay, I can go from point A to point B. I, you know, I have a goal. I want to get to this mountaintop or I want to get to this lake or I want to ski this particular line or camp in this location. And the technology, right? A GPS or an app on your smartphone, you can plug that in and you're just basically playing the video game, right? You're following the point, you're walking along, the phone is showing you which way to go. And it's giving you a false sense of security that you can accomplish that goal. And for me, I think it's really important to remember that these things are tools. They don't supplant our knowledge or experience. That experience comes from just being in those environments and situations where, you know, things aren't necessarily going your way or, you know, the weather's not being cooperative and you just kind of have to figure out how to make it work. But I think overall it's made it again, a lot more accessible, but I also think it's a bit of a siren song, right? It gives you this kind of luring effect. It it allows you to maybe go a little bit further or go a little bit deeper or a little bit further. And then when you couple that with something like a spot device or a Garmin inReach, where truly the cavalry is just one button push away if something goes sideways on you, I think that that can maybe impact decision-making in a way that gives people this false sense of security, right? And living in Montana, you're so remote in many cases that even if you do have one of these devices with you and you hit that button and you're calling the cavalry, the reality is if you don't have some of the skills and self-reliant capabilities to take care of yourself or handle an injury or handle a you know an exposure situation, that technology really isn't going to help because help can be a really long way away and may not be able to come at all, depending on where you are and you know what's what's happening out there. Yeah, I do think about that a lot and have heard many stories about people that maybe have gotten stuck in situations and even died because, yes, they had a device that they could summon help, but it took maybe five or more hours for them to arrive. Uh So I definitely see what you're saying. And also, I always wonder... 
Like if you're relying on the map, whether it's either on your phone or a GPS, what happens if you drop it or it breaks or it runs out of battery? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, that's a very real concern, right? Paper maps don't run out of batteries and a compass works unless you're holding metal or something near it. So I think these kinds of technologies are great, but they're not replacements for kind of that, that hard won knowledge of okay, this is what a, a map is. This is how you can navigate with a map. Absolutely, you know, batteries run out. Or if you fall in a lake, your phone's probably not going to work for too much longer anyway. So there's a lot of potential for things to get in the way of the technology. And then too, I think sometimes that the technology can get in the way of the experience. You know, if you're out there and you're using a GPS device and navigating by the screen on that device, you're not even really necessarily engaged in a part of the environment. And that can, you know, not only are you missing out on maybe enjoying what's actually happening around you, but maybe you're not aware of some potential hazards that you probably should be thinking about. Yeah, that's a really good point. Have you seen any specific changes, I guess, in technology over your lifespan from when you kind of started recreating and how it has maybe evolved or changed your personal interaction with outdoor spaces? Oh, definitely. I mean, when I started outside, cell phones weren't a thing. You know, I had a, a phone in a bag that I drove around for a long time. So, I mean, the whole evolution of smartphones and satellite communication devices has happened as I've been out, you know, in the woods. As far as how it's changed my approach, it's an interesting question. I definitely use my phone a lot more now than I ever did in the past, but I used a, a GPS for a lot of years. And so, you know, when I was working as a, a guide, we were required as part of our contractual obligations with the various places where we were permitted to work to have GPS units, communication devices, radios, you know, that was part of the liability planning and requirements there. We were also, you know, required to have by our company, a working knowledge, like an in-depth working knowledge of map and compass navigation and some specific knowledge of actual bearings to go from point A to point B while we were working on our primary location because the weather would get really nasty and visibility would shut down to nothing. And like we just talked about, right? The, the technology has inherent limitations. Batteries might run out or, you know, you might step on a GPS unit with a crampon and demolish it. And so you still had to be able to navigate from point A to point B using those tools. So I still carry a map and compass pretty much anytime I go anywhere. I love maps. I just, I think they're super cool and, you know, they tie back so far in our history as a species, you know, I mean, exploration and mapping have been a huge driver of human growth and, and kind of expansion around the, the globe. So I have this affinity for that, but I've definitely adopted my smartphone. I mean, I love using my smartphone to track where I'm going and, and be able to see where I am and be able to navigate to specific points. Just recently, I actually bought a little satellite communication device, a Garmin inReach that I carry because of where I go and, and how I like to recreate. I mean, I like to go pretty deep in the woods and, you know, things like backcountry skiing or backcountry hunting, you don't have cell service and things can go wrong, right? You could have a, a crash, you could have a tree 
fall on you or, you know, some sort of accident where you might need help. And so I carry those things so that I can alert the people that I know and love. They can come or they can, you know, call the cavalry or if things are really, really bad, I can call the cavalry directly. I've been unfortunately on scene on a couple of pretty significant issues in the backcountry where people have been in really serious physical trouble, right? Avalanche victims or heart attack victims way deep and, you know, needing to activate that emergency system deep in the woods can really make the difference between life and death. In one case in particular, we didn't have anything with us. And we had to send a guy running back into town and activate the EMS system. And, you know, unfortunately, that was a that was a pretty bad day in the woods. But if we at that point had had something where we could have gotten a hold of the EMS system, we may have had a different outcome. I I don't know. That was before any of those things were really available for us. But I think they have a place. I try and keep them in my backpack. Right. Other than my smartphone that I keep in a pocket, especially when I'm walking or setting a track or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. I kind of feel the same. It wasn't until the last few years of my recreating outside, I think because I started to do more solo backcountry things, I started to carry a spot device just because I also carry it now when I'm in groups as well. Mm -hmm. But it definitely was, it was a good sense of security. Yeah. (laughs) To know that (laughs) I could reach out to someone if I needed to, and I didn't have to figure it all out on my own. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, what's funny is for, for years, you know, I had a slightly different mentality. I thought, gosh, you know, if I'm willing to go and do these things, I need to be willing to own the consequences of these actions. And if anything happens, I need to know how to deal with it and how to, you know, safely or or at least get out of it. And when I did a lot of the education, the medical education, I mean, I was an EMT for a long time. I spent a lot of time in the EMS system. And so for me, I felt comfortable. But I saw so many things where having the ability to reach out to someone pretty quickly could make a really big difference. And so, you know, my thought process changed a little bit. And now I I have that here and I'd be willing to use it, but it would be a really judicious use. I'd have to be in a really pretty significant situation before I'd be alerting the cavalry, right? Not just lost after dark on a trail somewhere. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Those things can work in tandem, though, that base knowledge along with that backup in case of emergency kind of plan. Absolutely. And a lot of those devices are also nice. I've found just to check in, uh-huh. like send your location to someone. So in case you do drop off the map, then they're like, this was the last known location. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I mean, that's big, you know, and, and I think I think that's one of the, the best things that you can offer is where you are, where you plan to be. And if you can get that direct waypoint, right? That that specific lat long location where, you know, you last were or last checked in, that gives someone that might be coming to look for you a really good starting point. It's not the needle in the haystack anymore. It's the exact location where where they'd be most likely to run into you. Absolutely. If we're looking at technology from a slightly more sport-specific or narrow focus on sportsmen, so hunting and fishing, are there ways that technology has changed the way that sportsmen or women interact with outdoor spaces? Yeah, absolutely. There have definitely been a number of really specific pieces of technology that have changed how hunting happens. There's a couple in particular. One, trail cameras. So those are devices that hunters will will take and put out, and not just hunters, other people use them, 
but they'll take them and put them out in locations to try and capture images of the animals that they're after, right? The animals that they want to pursue. And there's been actually a development where trail cameras can upload images over cellular network and send them directly to your cell phone. So as a deer walks by or any other animal walks by, it will send that picture right to your phone. And that piece of technology actually has had tremendous impact in the Western United States and in places like Nevada or Arizona or Utah, where water is very scarce. There have been a huge influx of people putting these cellular trail cams or just trail cameras out over water sources. And so the states themselves have passed laws, in many cases, making it illegal for individuals, hunters to go out there and place these cameras and use them. A couple of the major organizations like the Boone and Crockett Club or Pope and Young, which are organizations dedicated to hunting and and conservation, have come out with position statements where they say, you know, this isn't fair chase. You're you're taking away a lot of the advantage by having this kind of real-time information fed directly to you about when and where an animal is, right? And you're you're really kind of circumventing the concept of fair chase or approaching an animal on the animal's terms. Another piece of technology would be drones, right? Drones that people can use to go and do scouting or looking over terrain or going miles away from their current location to see if there's another animal or or any animal in a drainage or, you know, out in a river bottom or something. And Certainly in Montana, and I believe in many, if not all states, the use of drones for hunting is prohibited. Can't take them and use them. You know, I personally am not a fan of drones. The actual droning noise drives me crazy. But also using those in a hunting situation, you are absolutely eliminating that concept of fair chase, in my mind. And you're also, again, you know, creating these layers between you and the experience. I think, you know, one of the things for me is the less that I have in between myself and my quarry as a hunter, the more satisfying it is. You know, I I love bow hunting for that reason. It puts you in a very kind of visceral predator-prey relationship where you have to get very close and you're kind of operating on your quarry's terms, you know. And there are a number of things that have been kind of regulated out of those situations, you know, trail cameras, the drones in state of Montana, electronics attached to your bow. So things that, you know, would be an electronic range finder, anything like that. Those are some really kind of specific pieces of technology that have had impacts on, you know, the hunting community and, you know, the fishing community has some of those same things, fish finders and that sort of stuff. But those are, you know, two of the main ones that have had, I think, a a really outsized impact are kind of the trail cams and and the drones. Yeah, I could see that having a big environmental impact and also a large impact on the hunter's experience as well, Mm -hmm. like you were saying. And we have kind of been talking about this a little bit and going in this direction, but do you think... In a broad sense, has technology changed our expectation of our outdoor experiences? That's an interesting question. I think yes, but I don't think that the technology that we're talking about, like GPS units and satellite communicators, I'm not sure that that has necessarily changed our expectations. I think one of the things that's really changed the expectation of outdoor experience is social media. 
right? Because you see these pictures and these incredibly curated experiences by people who are out in the wild, you know, and you see these amazing photos of people skiing or rock climbing or camping by these incredible lakes with these beautiful mountain vistas in the background. And it's a, it's a really, again, curated, I think is the best word, view of what's happening in the outdoors. And so someone who isn't or hasn't been maybe camping or, or backpacking or something forever has this idyllic, romanticized notion of what it means to throw on a backpack and walk out into the woods and camp at a lake. Right. And the reality can be radically different. I mean, it could be swarms of mosquitoes and thunderstorms and, you know, blowdown and dead trees and all this sort of stuff that you might not be familiar with. You might not know how to handle it. I think that probably has changed our expectations. And then, too, some of these pieces of technology have changed expectations in that it's made it so much easier to find out where a trail is or where a climbing crag is. You know, when I first started rock climbing in Montana, I always planned at least three trips before I would ever find stone. The first trip was just to find where the rocks might be <laughs> because the documentation was so bad, right? You didn't know how to get to point A. You didn't know how to get to the rock. You didn't know how to get to the route. So it always took about three tries to get there. Now, you know, you've got these amazing resources, things like Summit Post and Mountain Project and, you know, Bike Project and Trail Forks and all these things where this tribal knowledge has been consolidated and it's presented and it's made it available in a way that makes it so much more accessible. And accessible can be good and it can be bad. If someone who doesn't have a lot of experience, let's say, on a mountain bike or backpacking, finds a, a mountain bike trail or a backpacking experience that is far above their abilities, you know, they could get into trouble. But I think that accessibility component has probably been one of the biggest impacts on kind of our shifting expectations. Yeah. And I'm glad that you mentioned those because I think that it is a good transition into talking about what some of the positive and negative impacts technology has had. So accessibility, it can be either side of the coin, right? But are there other positive, really, really positive aspects or really, really negative aspects? Well, that's an excellent question. I think, yes, they're both, right? I'll use climbing as, a, as an example because it's a, it's a pursuit that's near and dear. You know, one of the really positive aspects of kind of technology and, and things like Mountain Project and Summit Post, where people have a lot of detailed information about these routes, you activate and energize a base of people to get out and participate and go experience these really cool environments. And that in turn, in some cases, hopefully in, in a lot of cases, can get people excited about preserving and maintaining these experiences, you know, for future generations. And so you get kind of this activist mentality and people who are, you know, donating to organizations like the Access Fund or the American Alpine Club that play a critical role in advocating for and, and maintaining access to a lot of these locations. And, you know, you get, as you get more and more people involved, you get this grassroots groundswell of activism and preservation and, and a, you know, a, a whole movement towards preserving this awesome experience because everybody is out there having this awesome experience. Flip side of that, you know, when you look at something like Indian Creek in Utah, 
there's a huge human waste problem down there as that location has become more and more popular. You know, you look at destinations like Mount McKinley or Denali in Alaska, human waste is a problem there. You know, more use isn't always better, especially in some of these incredible and pristine environments, right? And that's the entire idea of this, the minimalism is keeping that impact at bay. And unfortunately for someone who is new to these sports or new to these environments, they might not have the, the knowledge, they might not have the skills to go out and, and have a minimal impact. And that can lead to really significant conflict, right? Nobody wants to walk up to a crag or, or go walking on the primary climbing route and see human waste everywhere. I mean, that's just terrible. So that level of accessibility, I think, can lead to those kind of negative overuse consequences. And then that can spill right over into things like, you know, regulation, policy intervention, or shutting down of areas because of the impacts of, of that overuse. Yeah, I think overuse, especially with covid on top of that accessibility piece with technology has really started to come into the limelight of all areas of outdoor recreation. Mm -hmm. I've definitely noticed it a lot more in the last couple of years as well. And do you think it has started to like more greatly influence changes in just general policies outdoors or regulations, especially with things like getting permits for areas, hiking areas, trails, any of that stuff. Yeah. I mean, I think technology is, is impacting that, right? And that accessibility component, there's just more people. And, you know, in areas where permits control access or permits control ability to recreate, you know, the more people that know about it, the more people that apply for the permits, the fewer opportunities there are for everyone to draw those permits. I'm not opposed to that. I mean, I, I don't love the concept of pay to play or permit based access, but I think there are real strong balance in a lot of these environments. I mean, you know, they're amazing resources and we need to protect them and, and keep them for the children of the future and the grandchildren of the future and, and for many, many generations to come. And I think technology can help support that, right? Again, it's a double-edged sword. That accessibility and knowledge can lead to overuse, but it can also provide incredible channels and opportunities to educate new users about minimally invasive or impactful techniques or minimally impactful ways to move across the landscape or manage human waste or, you know, any of the things that we think about when it comes to kind of keeping that impact to a minimum. Things like in-app notifications, right? If you're looking at trail forks or something and they've got a note in there about a trail that says, hey, this goes through a really pristine area, you know, make sure you practice good lead no trace principles. I think there is a way to take advantage of some of the technology to help educate and really increase that minimalistic ethos and that respect that, you know, we all hope people bring when they come into the wild. Yeah, I think that education piece is really important. And a couple episodes ago, I had someone on from OnX Maps, and they were talking about how they integrate that more into all of their platforms. And I thought that it was really cool just to have all those like leave no trace things really accessible and even reminders 
like you were saying, as you are moving through a landscape to be reminded of like, maybe there's an endangered plant or there's a trail closure or something mm. like that is really mm -hmm. useful. Yeah, I'm, I love Onyx. I'm a huge user and, and I love the way that they've rolled in that messaging. The other thing I love about that is, you know, Onyx is using their technology to identify areas where things like public land is inaccessible, right? And this is a really positive outcome of the technology is calling attention to the fact that there's a lot of country out there that we don't necessarily have access to. And that's a big benefit in my mind is to be able to see it, to be able to visualize it too, using that technology, right? And that, again, can create that advocacy for access and, and preservation. Absolutely. Other than advocacy, though, do you think that there are other ways we can use technology to minimize those impacts or ways that not just individuals, but on a larger scale, so businesses in the outdoor industry can begin to integrate positive technological advances to minimize our impact? <laughs> That's a that's an awesome question, right? And the art of the possible is is limitless there, really. I mean, I think, you know, technology is one of those things where you could apply that in a number of contexts. We've been talking about it in terms of like these electronic tools that you can use, but, you know, advances in in fabrics or reversion in many cases to, to things like natural fabrics, wools and, and that can have a, a positive impact on the environment by not putting microplastics out, for example. I think that the harnessing technology, you know, minimizing environmental impact, absolutely. GPS for me is a, is a great way to do that by allowing us to plot and plan travel routes, for example, that allow us to move on durable surface, keep us away from wetlands, riparian areas, areas where, you know, moving through the environment could have a, a, a really detrimental impact. You know, from a business perspective, that's a, that's a harder nut to crack for me. I do think the example that immediately comes to mind is the announcement that the company Patagonia recently made about their investment in the environment. And I think they are doing a very good job of using the technological channels, right? These advances in how we communicate and how we share information to broadcast that message widely and using the, the network of people who care to amplify that message. So it's not necessarily using a GPS or, or a satellite device or, or anything like that, but it is using these new methods and means of communication to really strongly take a position, make a stand, and then have that amplified by people who care. That I think is one of the best ways for businesses to really minimize any sort of environmental impact is to just continue to communicate it and then continue to engage the community that cares and have them amplify that and continue to take that message far and wide. Yeah, because they often do also have a larger platform. So that advocacy piece for them not only would help build their brand, but also can get the word out to a lot more people than just one person. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's a little bit broader than the, the concept of the technology that you carry around in your pocket or your backpack or something. But I see that as a way and a pretty significant advancement in getting out, you know, a strong message of conservation and advocacy for the natural world. Yes, absolutely. One thing that I have started to think about as you've been talking, I've been trying to also think of ways that technology 
has a negative impact in general, which it's not good to always jump to the negatives, but human <laughs> brains, right? Right. So Absolutely. is the idea of planned obsolescence. So I'm not sure how much you know about that within the world of GPS devices, but I remember in writing the Outdoor Minimalist book, one of my challenges in like the reuse or repurpose section, I was like, what do you do with the technology? Because a lot of times that's really hard to recycle. Mm -hmm. There's not a lot of ways to repurpose this. It's kind of like once its life is over, it is destined to be disposed of in the landfill. Mm -hmm. So I know that's kind of a little bit off of what mm -hmm. we were just talking about. <laughs> hard switch here. That's all right. But... <laughs> If you had any insights in that, that would be good. Uh, for me, it, I, I, I definitely just use everything until it stops working. I mean, I have backpacks out there that I've been carrying for 15 or 20 years and still use them and carry them. You know, that planned obsolescence, I think that's terrible personally. That's one of the reasons I love the old Nalgene's. I mean, they're indestructible and you can just use them for 20, 40, 50 years. I think one potential way to overcome that a little bit Let's say, you know, in my own life, I've gone through numerous iterations of GPS technology. So I still have my map and compass. I mean, I still have my compass and then a ton of maps. And then one of the first GPS units I bought was an old Garmin E-Trex, one of the old little yellow ones. And I used that until I upgraded that to a, a better version of an E-Trex. When I upgraded, I actually gave that old GPS unit to, you know, a friend or family member. And I've done that a few times and that's not necessarily planned obsolescence in that the unit is, you know, it ceased functioning, but as the advances in the mapping technology and the, you know, the screens and all of that came along, I was able to hand those off to other folks, like-minded individuals that shared some of the same passions and some of the same pursuits that I did and have that actual device go on and continue to provide value for someone else rather than, you know, sitting in a desk drawer or going to a landfill or, you know, getting broken open, having the precious metals recycled and, you know, the rest of it going into a landfill. So I think one of the best ways to tackle that is really to kind of pass that torch. If you're out there and you've got a piece of technology that you're using and then you upgrade to the latest and greatest. Just knowing that someone else out there may not have the same resources or the same access to things that you do and making that available to them is a great way to help keep that stuff out of the landfill and continue to, you know, keep the the stoke alive for people getting out in the wild. I mean, that's one of the things that I really do try and do, you know. Yeah, I love rehoming gear or having gear rehomed to me because sometimes, yeah, you just aren't in a place where that's something that is accessible to you, but it can really improve your outdoor experiences. And I have used a couple different types of GPS devices. I don't own one personally. So I am just curious out of the ones that you've used, it sounds like mostly Garmin. Do they tend to have like a really good lifespan? Yeah. I mean, gosh, I have one that I've still been using for 15 plus years. I mean, they just, they're virtually indestructible. I mean, obviously if you stomp on them or something like that, you can break them, but the lifespan is, is quite long. Yeah. And they're, you know, generally user-friendly. And as long as you've got 
the right chip for where you want to go with the map set and the data in there, I think you can use them indefinitely. You know, I've carried them all over the world and used them with great success all over the world. And in many places, you know, if you're on a deep mountaineering expedition in rural Nepal, your cell phone isn't going to cut it, right? You're going to need a dedicated GPS unit to get from A to B. I mean, even the mapping there isn't as reliable as one might hope. We're very fortunate here in the U.S. that the USGS did the work that they did and gave us all these amazing maps. That's good to know. <laughs> I'm glad that the, <laughs> that the, I guess, planned obsolescence doesn't necessarily integrate itself into all types of technologies. Because I think a lot about phones and computers and how they need to get all of these updates. And then eventually, even if they still logistically function, they will just become outdated. So that was kind of like where my mind was going, wondering if GPS devices were doing the same thing. Mm-mm. No, I mean, they're, they're pretty much purpose built to use the GPS systems. And I haven't come across one that, that has failed to work. I don't have the oldest one that I still ever had. I gave that to a friend and I'm sure it still works. <laughs> well, that's good to know. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Well, are there any other things that you would like to add? I think for me, technology, it's a blessing and a curse. And I think one of the biggest things that I try and keep in mind is You know, I go to the woods, I go out in the middle of nowhere to get away from the computers and the cell phone, you know, text messages and phone calls and all that sort of stuff. So I think it, it, you know, it's important to remember that the more baggage that you carry out there, you know, technological baggage that you carry into the woods, the less kind of directly involved you're going to be. You know, if it's all about kind of following the GPS and making sure you're taking pictures to post up when you get back in town, you're really putting these layers in between you and that wild environment. And I think that that kind of really misses the point of going out there in the first place. I think there's a tremendous amount to be said for, you know, paring it down to the the bare minimums. And just being out and appreciating what we have when we have these incredible wild places, you know. So I think it's important to remember that just because you can do a thing doesn't mean you need to do a thing. And whether that's carry, you know, a sat phone and a satellite communicator and a GPS and a telephone and all that sort of stuff. Sometimes it's nice to just pare it down to the, the bare minimums and go appreciate it and enjoy what nature has to offer. Yes, I agree. Sometimes being a minimalist has its advantages. Absolutely. Lighter backpacks too. (laughs) Oh yeah. Yeah. A lot lighter. (laughs) Thank you so much for being on the show today, Garrett. You shared a lot of really great insights. And if there's anyone that wants to reach out or learn more about Garrett, they can reach out to me directly or I'll share his LinkedIn in the episode notes. So thanks again for being here. Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening. And if you like what you hear, let me know. Leave a review and be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can still find me on Instagram at outdoor.minimalist.book for daily updates, other educational resources, and to help build an outdoor community with a shared goal to create a better outdoor space as we recreate.